on this episode, I go in the startup van. Yeah. I'm like, this looks cool, this looks good, right. and it was enough to make me say, let's do it. Hey everybody, I'm Graham Pussy, and I'm the founder of Dream Factory. I want to figure out how this boy from Dublin ends up being interviewed about his successes. They paid him like 150,000 euros to speak, and then we got him free from longer. So they paid him. Corporate spend tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of marketing to be known. And then they send in me with a van. And if anyone wants a lesson in building a brand, that's it. It sounds very ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah, it was. Why, why all the time? I spoke to hundreds of vendors. Taking other people's money, I have to be sure, right? And ended up speaking to a VC, one of the largest VCs in Europe. Yeah, it was 136 k I was shocked at first. Because you know what's crazy? That just like sums up, like that sums up how mad the mind I used to lay awake and I go, I've messed that up to get that second punch in the face. That's not happening. Wow. Yeah. I am so excited for you to listen to this episode where I interviewed Graham Hussey, the founder and CEO of Dream Factory, which at the time of recording has 350 members and counting, two locations around London, multiple revenue streams. Graham has been so kind in openly sharing his journey of what got him from A to B. We break down all practical elements of what it takes to build a business from pricing and culture through to fundraising. He shares why he turned down VC funding, which is an interesting one, so stick around for that. Plus, what Gary Z is really like off camera. Stay tuned, I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please hit that subscribe button, it really helps me out. Graham, hey. it is such a pleasure to have you and your Dublin accent on the <laughs> Strategy and Tragedy podcast. It's wonderful to have to interview you in your own studio, in your own company, this is wonderful. This must feel very meta for you. Yeah, it does. Being on the other side of the table, you're the one interviewing others. I, haven't done, a, I haven't done a lot of this, <laughs> which will probably be evident by the end of this, but I haven't <laughs> actually featured a lot on other people's things. You need the practice. This yeah, is really a charity. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so, first question, the million dollar question, I think everyone wants to know from you. What was it like to meet Gary Vee? Uh, it was a bit of a whirlwind right I didn't know who he was you know 72 hours before we filmed with him which I think people it was Gary Vee was so I think he's less relevant today but he was really relevant then he was a superstar um, I think everyone thought we knew him a long time and we were grafting to get him in and reality is 72 hours before I didn't know who he was uh, and a friend of mine said he was coming to Dublin and I was like I don't care because I don't know who it is and they said, no, you really should check out, check out videos. So I basically binged watch his videos, like nonstop, just YouTube playlist. And, uh, and we just dropped a DM to his videographer. His videographer said, yes, you know, and he, you know, we had to kind of try a bit, but it wasn't that hard. And then meeting him was a strange thing because obviously he had just, when he had done Dublin Tech Summit and they paid him, I don't know if I said it before, but they paid him like 150,000 euros to speak and then we got him free for longer so they hate me um <laughs> but when he got in it was just very you know energetic and the way gary v is as it was exactly as you'd expect mm. um but then when the cameras turn off he's just like you know obviously busy dude he's on his emails mm. going through um and then and then a couple of days later that episode was released and and i needed to see can i find a clip of this but the episode was released it looked great we got loads of followers and loads of emails and you should come to Atlanta, you should come to Chicago, you should come to New York and which is really cool US exposure. 
and then he released another video after it and and referred to something about being in a creepy van or something like that <laughs> so he kind of did us in a few videos in um but it was cool meeting him but not all that great either right i think he was just kind of in the zone quiet on his phone right uh and I guess so what you saw on camera is what is what you experienced during well, those. Well, because minutes. the cameras are on. Yeah. Right. So, right. so I got like full Gary V experience because the cameras are rolling at right. all times. The, the time the, the the deal was we interview him, but we'd also give him a ride to the airport. Yeah. So the ride to the airport, I think there's clips of it online. Yeah. Um, we were like maybe sneakily recording. Um, but those clips online of him just you know on his phone. But he must have responded to three hundred emails in like forty minutes, oh, like on his phone beside me. It was crazy, amazing. Um, so it was kind of very much he's on when he's on and he's off when he's off. Time. Sort of saw that yeah. switch with him because there's no way you know there's no way without hard drugs that someone is that energetic all the time. <laughs> yeah, um, and I seen I seen the very different like like night and day different. But you have to be. I, I, energy conservation as soon as the camera goes off, I think, is the yeah. thing. But it was huge. It was, you know, at the time it was huge for us. It was right at peak of his popularity and it boosted our popularity. Mm. That's the name of the game, right? So as context for anyone who didn't already know, Graham, founder previously of the Startup Van, which was huge, especially in the startup ecosystem. Mm. I'd definitely heard of it before I ever met you. Mm. And, uh, and you have this fantastic story about how you hustled to get Gary V onto your creepy murder vibes yeah. startup van. Your words, not mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Matt and achieved it, and uh, and hadn't even heard of him seventy two hours beforehand. Which I was shocked at first because I what I am an ex. I'm a recovering Are you? Gary V. hard <laughs> fan. I've since graduated and come to my senses. And mm. um, but to be fair, because this was like seven years ago, I he was probably just coming into my consciousness back then as well. So I don't think you were. The only one, I think, as you say, it was the peak of his fame. And I have to say, I, I laughed so much when I was watching it, especially at the beginning, because it's kind of like OG Gary V from like almost a decade ago with that energy, yeah, with yeah. everything he's bringing. It's like pre-crypto. <laughs> yeah. It was always that sort of era where it's almost a caricature of himself. So it mm. does explain it that there's kind of that on off that you experienced. Yeah. Um, so what he talked about in that video, and I do encourage listeners to go and, you know, watch the clip. It's hilarious. Um, he talked about leveraging, getting him on as a guest mm. to then secure other high-profile name guests. Did you manage to succeed in doing that? Did you get any other amazing guests after Gary Vee? Or was Gary Vee the peak? Gary Vee wasn't my favourite, right? I think <laughs> I think probably following-wise, he's definitely the most. Um, but we had Tom Blomfield, who co-founded Monzo, Mike Lacton-Smith from Calm. These big founders on, because obviously we just leverage it. But to be honest, the most important thing, I think people who create content um, for startups, for businesses, always miss the point is, yes, you can get big guests on, but paying the bills is more important because if yeah. you don't pay the bills, there's nowhere for the guests to sit, mm. right? Um, so we didn't so much leverage Gary Vee for guests, we leveraged Gary Vee for cash, mm. right? So we would, you know, basically all day and all night cold outreaching conferences all around the world. Hey, we've interviewed the likes of Gary Vaynerchuk, Here's the clip, because obviously you got loads of views. Here's the clip. We want to interview founders at your conference. Here's how much it is. So was that how you were monetizing back then? Was getting the conferences to pay for you as like a media, yeah. a fresh media sort of Yeah, thing. so conferences, but more more often than not, conferences are really tight on budget. Um, so they'd say, hey, we can't afford it, but you know, maybe some of our sponsors will be interested. And then we go to our sponsors and basically. So it was, mm. you know, and, and I think we're the only 
you know, one of the only people who've, and especially in this side of the pond, actually managed to monetize and uh, content and do it really well in that B two B space yeah, for sure. Fantastic. I think everyone else just tries to do it for a bit and then, you know, realizes how hard it is, realize not making money off it, and then and then fall off. Mm. Um, whereas we were like, we need to make money at this. Mm. And I read about some of your big brand contracts as well. You were flying out to Chicago. The startup van, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah, that was the first trip we did, yeah. So what was that? Was that a brand deal? That was with Sage, yeah, the accountancy software company. So they sponsored you, essentially, to go around and do these interviews. Wow. Yeah, so basically there was no one, and I I still don't think there's anyone better than um, than me to do it. (laughs) But 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 to land in a city and in a really short space of time embed into an ecosystem, like a startup ecosystem. I think I've just done it in so many cities, done it in, in, in Europe, I've done it in Asia, done it in America, where you land in and it comes to a pay, place of authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. I care about startups so much. Entrepreneurs are my heroes, right? As cheesy as that sounds, but I think it's, you know, it's a really special thing to take a leap and do something for yourself. So landing in a city and being known in a startup ecosystem is something I'm, 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 I'm shit at loads of things but that's one thing I'm going at um, so that's why brands would say hey we need we're having a conference in Chicago and barely any people know who we are as a brand can you go out for three weeks before the conference and change that and if you think of corporate spend tens of millions if not hundreds of millions on marketing to be known and then they send in me with a van and a team three weeks before to do the same thing. Mm. So really, really effective. Do you remember the sort of value that they were paying you, you know, given that they were paying so much for these conferences? What was the sort of size of these contracts? It was like six-figure contracts. So good for you, cheap for them. Good for, good for us, cheap for them. <laughs> That's perfect. And it's the exact same, we're looking at the Dream Factory, but it's the exact same principle here, right? It's like a Dream Factory, which I'm sure we get into, is a sustainable, profitable business also great for the members so we've just landed i think that's like my, my thing right good old-fashioned business which which we'll get into because yeah. the recent ups and downs have definitely rebalanced the playing field but yeah more on that later mm. so just on the pricing side of things the other because i think that this is something that would be really valuable for a lot of founders listening to as well is you know pricing is a big struggle is especially mm. at the beginning trying to figure out how to price your services how much value to add to a contract you had that same struggle when one of these big brands came to you. Again, first time you're ever doing anything like this. I heard about a friend sort of said, no, go higher and encourage you to put a higher price. Mm. Tell us a bit more about that story and how you arrive at, at you know, your pricing strategies. Yeah, when a, when a multi-billion dollar brand reaches out, I think early stage founder is, it's more about getting some cash than actually pausing for a sec mm. and figuring it out because you have runway to deal with, you have staff to pay. Um, and then when we first got the the request to put in a bid to do something with Startup Fan, we just went, what's our, you know, what's our yearly salary currently? And, you know, put that into the proposal going, wow, imagine we got paid a, our year's salary to do something for three weeks. How cool would that be? And then we sent it to somebody, somebody that we knew who was from the agency world who would do, you know, contracts and bids with big companies. And they basically said, you're delivering unbelievable value to this business at 10 times that and their marketing budget is x amount of million in the tens of millions and you're charging them you know 40k Mm. what are you doing (laughs) and kind of helped us reframe because it's really hard to do it once you're used to you know a salary and once you're used to certain amounts of money it's just zeros being added for these big corporates right Mm. Uh, maybe different now but back then they're a little (laughs) bit more loose with their checks back then but um 
But yeah, it's just interesting to have a different point of view. Yeah. And it's something I say to founders all the time. Mm. Like you just ask questions. Mm. If you're unsure, yeah, because that would make, that would, I, I may not be here today. Um, I wouldn't be dead, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> but I wouldn't be here today because, because I would have went in at 30, 40k yeah. to do this thing. In reality, shit went wrong in that first, sorry, swearing. Stuff went wrong in that first shoot. Um, and you know, it cost us money to fix it. We yeah. lost hard drives and we had to rebook this and rebook that. Sure. We would have lost money on it and then yeah. we would have been like, sending out our CVs to get full-time jobs again um, versus doing it and having cash left over to give us time to do the next thing. Mm. I think this is something that happens more frequently than than we might expect. It's a story I've heard from, do you know Scott Galloway? Yeah. That Rooney Bells? Mm-hmm. He has a very similar story about when he learned... Um, when he had his first opportunity to win a big contract and he went through the same thought process because as you say, you're so used to one way of thinking about money and you're used to being employed and having a job. He went about pretty much the same way. It was a friend that was like, hang on a minute, that that mm. helped him to reframe. So it was like, oh my God, okay, let's go for it. It always feels wrong or scary. or And, uh, and he just has this great story about when he got the check in the post because this is obviously how long ago it was and he just felt like he needed to be sent to jail. <laughs> yeah. Like he'd done something wrong. Like, But it pops up all the time. It pops up all the time with yeah. um, people being asked to speak at conferences. Yeah, that's a good and, one. And I know, you know, people of colour, female founders are getting, you know, getting asked to speak at conferences and just, you know, typical story of the Gary V's get paid £150,000 mm. and then, you know, female founder gets paid nothing to do it. Um, and that always pops up. Mm. And it pops up for me to get asked to do stuff mm. and you kind of have to weigh up. You have to pause for a second because yes, you can ask for five grand and they may say no, they may say yes, but also what's it worth to you as well mm. to do that? That's a great example of the public speaking um, situation because I think it's when you take anything that isn't tangible where it's like well you know I haven't got my eggs and flour and the kitchen I need to rent to kind of maybe produce a physical product when it's like it's a speech that I'm delivering or it's something that's maybe less tangible it's a little bit more kind of what's the word I'm looking for nebulous yeah 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 for sure Um, but anyway so you mentioned before about your heroes being entrepreneurs which I love yeah so rewinding the clock a little bit then. So I want to figure out how this boy from Dublin ends up being interviewed about his successes in his own studio in the best city in the world. Sorry, Dublin. <laughs> so obviously you've had multiple ventures, you know, serial entrepreneur. Um, what You've obviously got an entrepreneurial streak to you. So did you grow up with that? influence around you your parents entrepreneurs or who did you look up to let's kind of take the clock back a little bit yeah I think um I don't think entrepreneurship runs on people's blood right I I know people have that in their Twitter bios or Instagram bios it's not a thing you don't you don't get passed down this I don't don't believe you get passed down this special gene special entrepreneur (laughs) gene is just not a thing Sorry, it just isn't, right? Um, I think risk appetite is, though. Yeah, risk appetite. I don't know, but then we get into nature versus nurture, don't we? Yeah, it's true. You know, I didn't have any, you know, entrepreneurs in the in the, in the true sense. Didn't have any around me. My dad was, you know, self-employed for a chunk growing up. Um, I kind of, as one of my investors say, eat what you kill, right? He would go himself, find work, do the work, get paid, put food on the table. Um, so for a chunk, he, he, he worked for himself. 
which is cool. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there was this kind of, hey, I'm surrounded by these business builders. Wasn't actually a thing. Um, but I think just being hyper curious is mm. is something, right? Mm. And there's something in just being curious. There's also something in freedom mm. of being in control of, of, of the money you make and what you do every day is... Mm-hmm. is it's a strong feeling for me that I want to do. Mm. I think that plays a part. You'd definitely rather have that than the stability of a mundane corporate job at IBM where you have to put a tie around your neck every yeah. time. Hating that. <laughs> Hating that. Big fan. And, and I think just, you know, I tried a lot of things, right? I, I don't know how many businesses I tried to start a lot. Um, but trying, and there's no better feeling to this day than just, something that was in my brain not that long ago turning into someone spending their own money because they like it Mm. and it boils down to that it doesn't matter if I was selling you know headphones that I bought in bulk when I was like 18 or a dream factory membership whatever it might be um, it still had you still feel so good Mm. it's really addictive that sense of pride it's exciting sure but not always glamorous. I read about your three pound profit business. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about the headphones. That's a cool one. Um, but tell tell us about this three pound profit business. <laughs> yeah, not my proudest moment. No, but all these stuff, right? But um, I love cars. Obsessed with cars and all things automotive, and I uh, came across an opportunity to buy. That's <laughs> so stupid. But to buy like eco friendly, and this is probably like 12 or 13 years ago, um, eco-friendly car wash solution. It sounds very ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah, it was, right? It Clu- sounds ahead great. Of its time. Yeah. Basically, you could go in, you know, multi-story car parks, you have no drainage in them sometimes and you can't have a big car wash in them, but this was like you spray it on the car, you wipe it off and the car is clean. Um, I thought that's genius. And I printed, you know, a thousand leaflets or whatever it was, maybe more. And put them in letterboxes. My parents helped me put them in letterboxes around the place. And then forgot the product was Californian. Forgot that I actually didn't live in California. <laughs> and cars have like three inches of crap on them. And not just dust. Um, and it didn't work. So we ended up uh, getting a, a call to do one of the, like a big four by four. And then my dad actually got there to do it because I was working in IBM. Wow. Um, and he was like, this spray will not work on this. And he actually drove it to a car wash and then cleaned it and brought it back. Uh, I think the profit was the profit was three quid on that. And that was it. I was like, well, let's let's shut let's shut this down. Do you know I think there's a market opportunity for this one? I think Be- it was too ahead of its time. Yeah. You yeah. know, eco-friendly, sustainable. Yeah, no one gave a shit back then. Yeah. <laughs> Relaunch it now in 2023 yeah, and exactly, let's see. Yeah. If we can make more than three pound profit off of yeah, it, yeah, yeah. If three factory doesn't work out, I'll fall back on that. <laughs> We've always got something to fall back on. Yeah, to. exactly. And um, so, part of that, you know, since then, it seems from the outside like you've got a lot better at nailing product market fit, mm-hmm. which really, you know, there's so many different terminologies for it. It's essentially that core value proposition, and we mentioned it briefly before about good old fashioned basic business, mm-hmm. and there's been a reckoning in the startup landscape vc funding has dried up we've got these fantastic case studies of the we works of the world that have actually sold their story more to the vcs than it is to the actual customers mm-hmm. they've forgotten about actually adding value into the market so i read about with the with dream factory which we're coming on to as well you 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 talk to, to a bunch of people first right like is that something that you 
you know, you put that market research ahead of launching, like talk through a bit of that process. Yeah, for sure. I think um, during lockdown, nothing else to do. Mm. And I always had to be surrounded by people all the time. So lockdown is tough, right? You, you don't get out, you don't meet new people, you don't hang out with people for the first time. That just wasn't a thing for such a long time. So I ended up speaking to people about content because I sat between you know, founders and content creation. So naturally I could speak to people easily about that. Mm. I spoke to hundreds, mm. hundreds of founders. Why aren't you doing a YouTube series? How come your TikTok content's not existed? Why mm. are your Instagram photos shot in your kitchen? You know, Why, why, why all the time? I spoke to hundreds of founders. So just to be nitpicky there for a sec, or so just jump in. But when you say spoke to founders, so did you literally like Call them watch. pick up the buzzer? Mm. You actually phoned them uh-huh. because you had these relationships with them from the days of startup. Yeah, I interviewed thousands. So so my phone, and I interviewed thousands worldwide, but mostly it was UK founders. Because mm. I figured if I'm going to do something, it's going to be here. Mm. I knew I wanted to be in person because I was pacing up and down my flat like a caged animal. I was like, I need to get out and do something. Um, so I knew it was going to be here. So it's mostly London-centric founders. Um, and it was basically them saying, I don't have the money, I don't have the time, or I don't have the expertise. It's one of those three things said hundreds of different ways. Mm. Um, and it was so important to do it, right? And I think I knew this business couldn't, you know, I'm not loaded, you know, sort of fan was great, but then when you don't do anything for two years, you know, cash you may have dwindled and I didn't have loads of money to put into this. So if you're taking other people's money, you know, I think startup fan was self-funded, right? So you could take a bit more. Well, me personally, I was like, well, let's give this a shot. Interview some founders, see if we get some corporate sponsorship and then kind of roll with the punches and keep going. With this, taking other people's money, have to be sure, right? Mm. Had to be sure there was something in it. And it wasn't a load of money I took to, to launch this, but there's no way I could do it with a clear conscience unless I actually knew people mm. want this. It's another level of conviction, isn't it? When you're taking other people's money, they're betting on you. So let's break that down then. So you got seed investment to launch Dream Factory. And this was right at the beginning. So this was based on an idea, right? Mm. So who did you sell to? How did you go about working out how much you needed? Again, talk through that process on the pre-seed investment. So initially, I have a big mouth. So I just told everyone about it. <laughs> I know some people get their ideas and keep them. I just called everyone, hey, this Dream Factory thing. So calling everyone about it um, and I ended up speaking to a VC, um, one of the largest VCs in Europe. And they said, this sounds super timely. Once COVID goes, we want to be a part of it. We could actually fund it and let's do a joint venture. So they were like, we'll fund it. You run it and we go 50-50. And I thought this was such a shortcut to winning, right? I was like one of the biggest VC, you know. I would struggle to even think of being at a dinner table with this person a couple of years ago. Now they want to go in and do a joint venture. Um, and then I called one of my friends, um, his friend now, back then I didn't, you know, it was the first call. I called him and I said, I have the best news ever. And he, I, you know, I was calling to explain the idea, but I just, I kind of went in casual. I was like, oh, actually, I want to talk to you about investment, but I don't need it because it's done. And he was like, well, you'd send me the Cal invite a day ago, so what's changed? And I told him that, like, this VC wants to do a joint venture. And he's like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. He's like, they're going to own half your business. You don't even know what it is yet. And I go, yeah, but neither do they, and they're willing to fund it. So and he just says the stupidest idea ever. I'll, I'll put in a check, raise a round of funding, and just get it done, because you'll, re- you'll regret that if you take that cash. 
Amazing. Which he was so right. He was the first check in and he introduced me to someone else who introduced me to someone else and I opened up my network mm. um, and, and I got the funding and, and it was enough to put the keys in the door and twist it. That was it. So I had, I had no runway once the, once the doors were open. But I love that. And just thinking back to the, uh, what's that saying? If you want, if you want money, ask for someone's advice. If yeah. you want their advice, ask for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Which accidentally kind of happened to you here at the start. Yeah, it did. Um, that is fantastic. That's so exciting. Quick fun fact. Did you know that the annual spend on outsourcing and hiring agencies is $900 billion this year alone? That's why I'm so proud to collaborate with 50pros.com, a new and fast-growing platform that connects highly vetted agencies with companies looking for their next marketing partner. If you've ever had to source your own agency before, then you'll know unless you've had a good referral, it can be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's why with 50pros.com, they provide you with a curated, vetted, no-noise directory of only the top 50 firms within 50 categories. Head to the link in the show notes, 50pros.com, and I really hope this helps you get it right with your next marketing partner. All right, let's get back to the show. Are you okay sharing how much you got at the start, the seed funding? Yeah, it was 136K. And that was based on the lease of this place? Or? It was like the lease, it was getting some gear, hiring some staff. Um, yeah, it was just, it was just, just, it was, it, yeah, it was just enough. It was, it was no runway, yeah. right? Um, and so the lesson here is around kind of networking, talking to people. Well, yeah, I, I, I think, I think, you know, I was in a unique position that my actual job before was meeting founders, was meeting investors, building those relationships that was in there. Um, and it was a natural part of it. There's no way I would have raised that raise that money ever mm. in a million years like fresh out the game oh not in a million years if i didn't have that if i didn't have that network no mm. chance i think there's something in there and you know not for the listeners here as well is not as black and white as oh you know being super extroverted and networking you know this obviously worked for for graham i think actually it's going a level deeper there and mm. thinking about what are your strengths because we're not all graham hussey or stephanie melodia we've all got our own unique qualities and strengths play to those sure and really maximize the opportunities whichever come your way and kind of be ready to grab them with two hands when they are. Mm. Um, so we're getting into Dream Factory now. So you've got the money and turning the key in the door. You mentioned about getting staff. What was the position of the first member of staff that you hired? Because that first one that you're hiring yeah. is crucial. That's a big decision. Yeah. So so when I got the space in Shoreditch, um, it was not in good shape, um, to say the least. So, um, you know, obviously we had to do a build and we had to do a kit out and the admin was insane and we had to order a million different things every single day and orders were missing and I am the least organized person ever. So I hired an intern um, to come in and help me and she was she was first hire here, Karina. Um, and then she had her, you know, she, she started and, you know, she's doesn't mince her words and she's like this is pretty cool but I don't want to do this forever and I was like well I didn't think you would um and she 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 said her dream was to be a light you know a lighting technician for movies and tv um so I was like that's kind of cool because she's going to at least be able to help with the studio stuff mm. um and then we and then we hired hired her which was and she's helped you know I've told her a million times how much she's helped 
me in the business at that I was drowning at that time two two or three hours sleep a night really struggling with it and, and she came in mm. 18 or 19 years of age and just wow. absolutely nailed it and then and then fast forward 12 months later she came to tell me she was um, she was going to apply for a job and would I mind giving her a reference um, and lying a bit which I did uh, and she she's now working on uh, Hell's Kitchen Gordon Ramsay as a lighting oh, assistant so it's quite cool how like she came in day one saying this is what I want to do and now she's doing yeah fantastic and I think that kind of links back to the self-awareness piece with mm -hmm. actually hiring somebody that plugs that gap you self-confess not the most organized person in the world mm -hmm. so plug that gap did you know that you had enough of a runway because again you know you talk about the responsibility taking external funding someone else's money for me I feel an even greater responsibility when I start hiring people yeah. because they depend their rent, their mortgage, their savings, sure. their pension. It all depends on you. So how, what was like your level of confidence, safety, decision-making frameworks to be like, yeah, like things are in a solid enough state to to pay someone else's pension? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we, we had a bit of runway at that stage, not an awful lot, but I had people who, we, we, we had 25 members of Dream Factory before we had cameras. Wow. And if anyone wants a lesson in building a brand or building a startup, that's it. If you have so much conviction something that startups who are cash poor mm -hmm. believe in your mission enough to pay you for 12 months subscription before you have cameras, you know you have something super solid mm -hmm. and really, really strong. Um, and, and one of the first 25 members... Um, she works at Dream Factory now, and wow. so so people having because she believes in it so much. She was she was a co-founder of a business now is helping scale Dream Factory. Mm. Um, so so point being, I didn't have much runway, but then we had cash coming in mm. before we had cameras. It was a good indication that things that's were, a very good things idea. are going to go okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that, especially I'm aware of your early stage funding from the VC side of the fence and those metrics you need to look at in the early stages before you're generating revenue, some of those things you need to look at to see, is this a good bet? And mm. yeah, some of those signs are, are so exciting. Yeah. You talk as well about the uh, the culture that you've um, developed here at Dream Factory. And, and actually I've had comments from other members from the outside. Um, I'll be completely honest, I was doing my due diligence a little bit before signing up yeah you're like what do you think of it should i is it worth it and outsiders were like it's fantastic like everyone there is super helpful these were genuine comments i love the smile on your face yeah, yeah. it makes you happy that. yeah <laughs> it's so lovely it's so validating as a founder not only have you built something successful but genuinely in back channels in private whatsapp chats with me people mm -hmm. are uh, being like yeah it's actually amazing people here are really helpful and i've since experienced that as well so i can feel that culture since joining as a member, what do you attribute that to? Because it's not as, you know, you're doing something obviously fantastic here, but it's not as if it's a charity or, you know, you've got this super saving the world mission that mm -hmm. you don't need to have to build it. So what's really got everyone kind of so tight knit here? I think everyone has, their, I think everyone has something different. I think if you ask every staff member of Dream Factory, every team member, they'll have something different to say about it. Um, it's genuine authenticity for me team know exactly what's going on at all times and if they don't they can ask um we genuinely believe that in five years time if you pick up your phone or open your laptop and you see a piece of business content that's not shot at dream factory that will be strange <laughs> and and i think the team being being a part of that is really important 
I think when the time comes and DF goes public or, or, or we exit, that the team that work here now and help build the first one in London never have to work again. Um, I think that's an amazing thing that they can start their own business. They can do passion projects. They can still work at DF. I, I think that's another part of it, but it's sheer pride. You know, no one sees this because it's internal. But if someone posts this podcast or if someone posts a piece of content they shot on, you know, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, it's just pride from the team. Mm. Wow, look at this, look at this founder who's created this dream factory. How amazing. And everyone jumps in the comment and, mm. you know, and, and they absolutely love it. Um, and, and it's a real special thing. And, and I don't think I've seen it before where people join dream factory and then they have to move on. It's the realities, you know, it's not all, I don't want to give the impression of all these like mad employee pixies come in and they start dream factory. Remember, it's perfect. <laughs> um, but I think the team are so tight knit. The team are so strong that if someone joins and they don't have that in them, that sheer pride in what they do, they don't last. Mm. They don't last because me as a founder, I would back myself against any other founder in the world to do a business like this. And I think each team member would back themselves to do what they do versus mm. anyone else in the world, right? Um, yeah. I think that sheer pride p plays a huge part in it. Yeah, I love that. It must feel, how does it feel for you being sat here? You're now the founder of a super successful business. You've got 30 staff and growing, multiple locations. How many members are you up to now? 350, yeah. And compared to not that long ago in the grand scheme of things where you were sat in creepy murder vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the main sort of difference that you kind of feel between like here and there, then and now? Um, I think, I think to be honest, I think the biggest difference is people have my back now, mm. right? It's It's, you know, having a team and a mission and a vision and and be all on that path together makes me I don't know makes me feel proud makes me feel that's the biggest difference right mm -hmm. I think and, and it's a lesson and I say it's to founder friends of mine back then if we had you know 11 months runway in the bank it was like wow, it's 11 months runway we can we can you know relax a bit it's 11 months runway versus you know me saying well let's hire two people that runway will go down to x amount of months but then we have two people to help us scale and grow and people who have our backs so it was kind of over indexing on oh we're okay we'll survive for 11 months versus let's hire people and go for it and make something mm. of this so the biggest difference is having that you know i walk in on a monday morning meeting and there's all those people there who were just good to go that week amazing way that's a really good feeling yeah. that sense of like traction or scaling is that yeah. what you mean yeah yeah for sure yeah and that's gonna you know that's gonna bring challenges um you know we're gonna launch new york for the end of the year um and, and to bring that there i've a i've a plan which i think well, i hope will work um to, to be able to have the the energy that's here there because mm. anybody listening to this can get a camera or two and some lights and some mics and put it in a room anyone can do that dream factory is a very different thing mm. um and the last thing i want is to launch a dream factory in the city and it's just lights and cameras and mics in a room that's not a dream factory and that's going to cut that's the next scale of mm. uh, that's the next challenge that we're going to face but the whole team is ready for it and, and they don't back down from anything it's maddest thing no. ever yeah it's the essence of a brand that you describe and obviously more my world but you know brand is more than just a logo it is that sure. feeling that sense you say anyone can come in and put these 
materials in place, but actually there's something that's intangible, but it doesn't mean that it's any less important, right? Yeah, for uh, sure. The one thing that Startup Van and Dream Factory do have in common is the personal brand element. Mm. So you've built businesses that have enabled founders to tell their stories. Uh, was that something that, again, you did kind of consciously or was that very much just looking at how can I add value in the market? Where's the gap? I just wanted to hear the stories. <laughs> you just, your own curiosity. I just wanted to hear the stories. And, and, I can uh, relate to that, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I'd hear the stories directly and it would be absolutely incredible. And then I would see a piece of content that they post or blog. That's not, it's not even 1% of the passion that I heard face to face. I'm like, I was like, if you could just bottle your actual ambition and passion and let people drink out of it, <laughs> it's a different story than a you know, poorly written blog post because founders aren't writers most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so I, it was just wanting to hear the stories and feeling like mm -hmm. they deserve people to feel that passion like I feel if I talk directly to them. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically where it came from. Um, and then you roll with you roll with it, right? And then opportunity comes up, you grab it with both hands, you maximize it, you do your best and you keep going. And that's, I always say, it kind of feels like I'm wading through snow, you know, four foot of snow. It's one foot in front of the other all the time. Yeah. Um, and then you end up here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, final question. I'm super grateful for your time and sharing your open and honest stories. It's so interesting. But this wouldn't be called the Strategy and Tragedy podcast without sharing a tragedy. Mm. I do believe that some of the best lessons come from our biggest mistakes. Mm. So can you share one of the biggest tragedies that's happened to you and the big lesson that you took away from that? So... The beginning, but just before the beginning of lockdown, um, with Startup Plan, we signed a big multinational uh, company, one of the is Volkswagen. So one of the biggest companies in the world were going to pay us to travel to forty cities in twelve months. Crazy amount of money, total freedom to do what we wanted, um, and, and we signed that and kind of just went, well, that's great, you know, and. Um, where in reality, looking back, we probably should have got other brands and other projects and add some on versus just kind of go, well, we signed this big thing. That's great. Um, and then when lockdown hit, it was it was kind of a punch in the face of, wow, this is, you know, you're watching Boris Johnson on TV saying we're all going to die. And it's um, that was a, a strange thing. And then you get that second punch in the face, which is Volkswagen saying that's not happening. Hmm. Um and that's like, that was big because obviously we told everyone, right? And this is the thing I think with founders, you tell everyone everything <laughs> because you, I think it's a coping mechanism, right? You know, you get you have to deal with so much crap all the time mm -hmm. and so much stress. If something good happens, maybe it's just me, but you immediately it's a coping mechanism of saying this thing's great, this thing's great, and then you tell so many people, and then that's a punch in the face of it's actually not happening. Um, it's almost like a naive optimism, isn't it? It's that positivity. You see, you know, the coping mechanism is you got to believe it's going to work out. You got to believe that the best case scenario is going to be the outcome of this. Mm. So, yeah, that's completely understandable. That's one of the biggest differences I see between successful founders and founders who aren't so successful is that blind optimism. Mm. Has to be. Mm. Any founder I know that's great is just this will work. Mm. 
and it won't stop until it works. <laughs> Versus when I, before, you know, people are on paper, maybe even in real life, way smarter than I am, will open up a spreadsheet and go, it won't work because of this. Mm. Right? And I know so many people who spreadsheet themselves mm. totally out of an idea mm. versus following gut, speaking to people, doing your research and executing on it is a big difference. So that was like really hard to deal with because you're, you're dealing with lockdown, which the whole world's dealing with. But then you're dealing with a personal, you felt like a failure, felt like, oh, and even though it's COVID, you, mm. um, no one can help it. It was like, oh no, I failed at something. I failed at this. Um, so did that lead to the demise of startup? Yeah, then? big time. Yeah, yeah. Because then it was like, oh, do we, you know, let's do we do stuff online? But that's not quite the same. And obviously, everyone started piling on, on online to do Zoom interviews mm -hmm. um, and launching podcasts and doing. And then it was, you know, we spend so much time and 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 uh, money making sure we're elevated and we're better and we're different to then playing fields just leveled. Mm. Um, so, so it felt a bit strange, but that was like business tragedy. That's like, that's it. That's. But then like a Phoenix from the ashes yeah, up yeah, rose yeah. dream factory. Sure. So. And, and I look back at how hard that was then really difficult to deal with. Um, and, and, and I think friends of mine, you know, that weren't founders, uh, this is bad to say, but they were loving it. They were just like, we get to work from home and I'm getting paid and, you know, and, and, um, having a good time sometimes, or obviously it was hard times, but then it was me saying, oh, well, like this X amount of money contract has just been pulled. I don't have a job, really. Um, and it, it's a big crash, right? It's gone from on paper, you know, and in reality, travel the world interviewing founders, get paid for it, to small apartment in Shoreditch, no job, contract pulled, um, but it was a global pandemic that drove that to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, but you know any... what? You know what? You know what's crazy? That just like sums <laughs> up. Feel like a failure. That sums up how mad the mind, you know, mm. your your mind is because global pandemic, no one could do anything about it, and you still, I still lay, lay awake. I, you know, used to lay awake and I go and mm. I've messed that up. So any founder out there is listening to this, thinking that they failed at something and. More often than not, it's something that, you know, in a year's time, you just, you realize you learned something from it, which you didn't realize at the time. Yeah. Um, and I learned, I learned that with Dream Factory, multiple revenue streams mm. at all times. Mm. Yeah. No eggs in one basket, which I think was an issue back then. Multiple revenue streams. We do new memberships. We have lucky enough to be in business long enough to have renewals. We do, we have editing revenue. We have event, we have ad revenue. You know, it's it's that lesson learned, and I'll never forget it. And we sit down in Monday meetings. It's like revenue streams, yeah, right. revenue streams, safety nets, runway, mm -hmm. um, and, and and it's a big lesson. That's a tragedy, you know, if you want to put it that way. But it's uh, yeah, the we'll lesson let the less yeah the lesson learned were, <laughs> the lesson learned is invaluable. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Otherwise, of course, we would not be sitting here today. So I'm very pleased about that particular tragedy. Graham, thank you so much for oh, your time. You. It's been a real pleasure hearing your story and very grateful for, again, your openness. And congratulations again. I'm looking forward to world domination. Thanks for having me. If you made it this far into the podcast, then you are my new hero. Thank you so, so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please hit that subscribe button. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Take care.